Hello, and welcome to episode 151 of the Cognicast, a podcast about software and the people who create it. I'm Russ Olson. Well, as I record this on April 25th, 2020, we are just finishing up coronavirus pandemic week number... Well, I've lost track of which week it is. However long it's been, we here at Cognitech hope that you're well and safe and doing what you can to keep yourself that way. One of the ways that I'm trying to cope with all of this is by focusing on the positives, and certainly our guest this week, Sarma Villamuri, is as positive a phenomenon as you're likely to come across. Sarma is a medical doctor and one of the founders of the startup Luminaire, and, and well, Sarma is also incredibly articulate, so I'll leave it up to him to tell his own story. So please take care of yourself, take care of your family, take care of your coworkers, and take care of your community, and together we're going to get through this thing. But for now, just sit back and listen to Sarma and Gotti and episode 151 of the Cognicast. Everybody. Today is April 13th, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Gadi Shaban, and today it's my great pleasure to talk with Sarma Velamuri. Welcome to the show, Sarma. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, as traditional on this uh, podcast, we like to ask our guests to relate an experience of art to our listeners. Uh, it could be anything. It could be music, uh, uh, actual visual art, dance, or, you know something um, totally off the beaten path. And so what do you have for us today? Okay, well, I'm gonna give you two uh, for the price of one. I'm gonna relate two pieces of art to you. One is uh, I moved to St. Petersburg, Russia when I was seven. Um, and I uh, my university was across the street from the Hermitage, which is also known as the Winter Palace. Um, and it was free to get in if you were a student. So I spent uh, a lot of time just, you know, walking around, looking at impressionist art and Rembrandt and Monet and um, like a lot of the sculptures. So eventually, um, I mean, I was, you know, didn't have any money, so I couldn't do anything else. So I just walked around a museum all day. Um, And eventually I became like good enough to start giving um, people who came to the city small tours um, of, of the Hermitage. So that's one piece of uh, uh, art sort of, um, what, what did you call it? Like art uh, information, I guess. Uh, an experience. Of art. An art experience. Yeah. yeah. That was, you know, the other was more recent. It was almost like a spiritual experience. I uh, pretend to play music on, uh, on a few instruments and I ended up um, in Cleveland and my flight was delayed. So I, I went to the rock and roll hall of fame. And so if you look me up on Facebook, Ooh. <laughs> it's okay. It's... Everybody's in quarantine and we're, we're trying yeah, to deal yeah, with yeah. background noises. <laughs> it wasn't my dog, by the way. So <laughs> so I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and it, that was like a very spiritual experience for me. I walked around and, you know, uh, learned about, you know, how rock and roll came to exist. And, and it was just fascinating. And then there was a 
there's a professional music studio there and uh, the bunch of guys playing i was in my suit and they look at me and say hey man you want to play and i'm like yeah sure and he's like uh, yeah sure join us on the keys and i'm like okay so you know so i got to like sort of sit at the keyboard and just pretend like i knew what i was doing and played with a professional rock group uh oh, so cool. that was fun that's <laughs> awesome i'm i'm actually a, yeah. a a pianist um by um educational training i uh i oh wow yeah went to conservatory for 10 years and uh oh wow so, so <laughs> yeah i i I, yeah, I'm flubbing my way through piano. Like I'm learning uh, bossa nova by Zoom right now. Oh, that's uh, great. So it's it's, a, it's really hard because I don't read music that great. I'm more like one of those like Louisiana jazz type pianists that I play by listening to the music actually than reading. So if I just sort of close my eyes, I get it right. But if I like read music, I get it wrong. Oh, that's interesting. I think I'm like the opposite. I'm. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're more talented you win <laughs> no no i don't i don't know about that um well that's cool that's that's cool to, to share things in common um well so you started luminaire and you're, you're a doctor um uh by background uh, what what is your medical background can you tell me about your um yeah your experience so I, yeah i'm a so i'd like to say right now that i'm a recovering doctor um so i did so I, did, I went to med school in St. Petersburg in Russia. So I uh, started med school at 17, uh, graduated at 23 uh, in wow. Russia. And I didn't know anyone in Russia. I just kind of got on a plane and went there. Um, and then I came back and dropped out of medical school. I dropped out of medicine for two years. Uh, I just stayed home with my grandparents and, you know, did things like change diapers and exciting things like feed them and cook and that kind of stuff for a couple of years. They had dementia. Towards the end, I was like, oh, you know, I have a MD license a degree. I should do something with my life. And I ended up uh, coming to Houston. Uh, so I did my residency at the Baylor College of Medicine. And I just walking around. My wife is from Sweden. I was, the plan was always to move to Europe and work there. Um, and, uh, I was, you know, someone walked up to me and said, uh, Hey man, what you doing next year? And I'm like, I'm moving to Stockholm. See you later. Somewhere. <laughs> and the guy was like, Hey, you wanna, you wanna, you know, he, I, I did say, see you later. Somewhere. He was a, he was a mentor and a good friend of mine. And so I ended up working as a hospitalist, which is a inpatient only internal medicine physician. And it just so happened that a lot, about 80% of our patients were transplant patients, either pre or post transplant. Uh, there's no specialization in medicine and transplant. So you just kind of learn by doing. So I spent maybe about five years just doing that all day, uh, just taking care of pre and post transplant patients. Um, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but became pretty good at it. And so that's kind of like the medical background. Interesting. I. My um my very first job in in IT was at uh, at a hospital too. Oh, um, I'm sorry. I know, I know. <laughs> so I was on the outpatient side, though. Um, oh, okay. But um, you know, doing sort of systems integration between labs lab systems, but um, but inpatient seemed always like a different world entirely. Different. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I used. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, it's certainly more intense. So, you know, it's kind of like. Um, People always say this, oh, you make a mistake and someone dies. Unfortunately, like at my last job, that was true. Like, you know, you're just on, under pressure all the time not to make mistakes or people die. And, you know, it's kind of a reality you live with. Wow. You, you um, uh, 
I, I see in my notes that uh, you did some work in um, in the Congo. Um, can you tell oh, us? Oh yeah, that? I don't know that. Oh, I your your <laughs> your, uh, your cognitech guys have been like feeding you information. I've done I've my been research. Sharing in conference. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, okay, so uh, yeah, it was really uh, was it probably the cleverest thing I've done in my life. Um, I was a final year medical student and. Um, uh, one of our friends opened a gas station in um, his his American slash Canadian with a German wife uh, with Swedish citizenship with two Swedish kids and they moved to they moved to Putembo which is the third largest city in the Congo and uh, he started a gas station to teach like locals how to run businesses and kind of bring some sort of like economic power to them. Uh, Congo is an incredibly rich country. Uh, it has, it's uh, surrounded by 10 other nations, um, extremely rich um, with respect to natural resources, but, you know, kind of poor because of, you know, the situation on the ground there. Um, and he, he just invited us saying, hey guys, you want to come on over and teach like, you know, some of the Congolese about, you know, just medical practice about, you know, how to not get HIV, how to not get hepatitis C, stuff on vaccination, uh, and just kind of, you know, help us do that. So um, I ended up going there with a group of uh, a group of uh, medical students. My, my uh, dean initially said, uh, no, you're not going. It's in the middle of the term. And I said something like, well, I'm the best like student you've seen in the history of your, you know, 400 years university. So best of luck trying to fail me. I'm going by. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so we ended up going there just to, you know, uh, see what this guy's up to with his gas station and, and kind of bring some medical education to the locals. And um, it has been my, one of the things I wanted to do was uh, walk through a tropical rainforest. And, you know, so I was like, great, let's go. And so we went there. Uh, one of the things we did there was we carried, um, I think we carried about maybe 50 pounds of salt in a rucksack uh, through the forest um, to the pygmies because one of the things they don't have is access to salt. You know, wow. it's just one of those things that, you know, you can't make up, right? <laughs> and so, so, you know, trudging through the rainforest with salt on our back, that was, you know, what we did and educated people like in uh, not, not the not the pygmy population but like just the general uh, congolese population on uh, just you know how to not get hiv and hepatitis c and not sharing needles and all that fun stuff mm -hmm. and while we were there there was a uh, early outbreak of uh, ebola um, <laughs> and you know it was like uh, this is back in 2007 and uh, it turns out that the, the physician population there, a lot of them are from Russia. They're Russian trained. Uh, the Congo has strong relationships with Russia academically. So a lot of these doctors went over to Moscow, did medical uh, Congolese doctors, and then come back and start um, uh, start practicing. Um, the UN Monuk, which is the peacekeeping deployment there, is um, mostly Indonesian and from India. And so the Congolese speak French and English. The, the peacekeepers, the soldiers spoke mostly like Hindi and uh, Hindi and you know sub dialects uh, Urdu, um, uh, 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 you know sub dialects of um, of Arabic. Um, uh, the um, doctors spoke uh, medical Russian, and you know the the business guys spoke English. So basically, between me, my now wife, and um, 
a couple of our friends, we had nine languages covered. So we had Russian, English, French, Swahili, um, uh, you know, uh, Hindi, uh, parts of Urdu and other things. So we were actually able to sort of glue all of the different pieces together <laughs> and help like bridge communication gaps. Um, so you would have to translate from person to person in some cases? Uh, yeah, what we would do is like we would basically all stand around in a circle and one person would say something and, you know, uh, uh, different people would just say say the same thing again in a different language. And so, you know, and then we would kind of grammar check each other or be like, no, no, he actually meant this other thing, you know. <laughs> uh, so it was, it was a very interesting experience. And, you know, the thing that I remember the most one of the things that I remember the most is sitting in this small polyclinic um, or, you know, small outpatient center and remembering that, hey, you know, the next person who walks in the door, if they have like blood streaming down their face, like, you know, tag your in, right? And thankfully, Ebola is not as contagious as um, some of these other like uh, viral illnesses that have been going around since. But that was just eye-opening to kind of be there on the ground and not have access to equipment. And thankfully, like we didn't see any patients with Ebola at the end of the day. Um, there were a few that came through, but you know, and there wasn't a very large outbreak in that part of the Congo. Huh. Uh, there were a few people there, but it, you know, I didn't get to like, you know, for, 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 for good. <laughs> I, I, I didn't get exposed or none of the people that I were with got exposed and it was a very contained outbreak at that time. Hmm. Yeah, so that, wow. that, that, that was it. I didn't get to see any gorillas, so I'm kind of sad about that. Like, we were very close <laughs> to where, you know, there was a gorilla, like, national uh, reservation. Um, did get to um, uh, eat a fish with scales on, uh, eat an animal that I couldn't identify that still had fur on it when they barbecued it. So, yeah. Yikes. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's yeah. unsettling <laughs> yeah yeah i was like chugging my food with uh, coca-cola so what led you to start luminaire and maybe um if you can explain to our listeners what luminaire is and what uh what it serves sure so luminaire is uh, latin derived for to shed light upon um and i started the company with uh, marcus uh, he's my co-founder he's from sweden um, this was like six years ago. Uh, I was, you know, walking around being a doctor and taking care of patients. And one of the, like I mentioned, a lot of the patients we saw were transplant patients. So, you know, upwards of 80% of these patients were immunosuppressed on medications or had chronic organ failures. And my patients used to get sepsis, which is the body's response to an infection and die of sepsis very quickly. I've seen patients die of sepsis in six hours. And, you know, six hours ago, they were sitting in bed watching TV. Six hours later, like I'm standing at bedside pronouncing them dead. Um, and especially like, you know, patients who have end-stage liver disease, um, they used to die really, really quickly from sepsis. And so I end up on a hospital's committee trying to figure out how we can better identify patients with sepsis. It really you know boil down to having a checklist where people understood people agreed what sepsis looked like and the nurse knew to look for it 
Um, so it, it came to a situation where even experienced nurses, if they were not checking the medical record to see what was going on with the patient first thing in the morning, and if they weren't actively looking for sepsis, like most experienced nurses and doctors would miss it, me included. Um, and if you weren't actively asking yourself, you know, there's a, there's a word that I like to use. It's uh, the reason people die in hospitals is physicians fall to anchoring heuristics. So they make an assumption, they kind of understand medicine is in a certain way. And then we decide that that's what's going on with your patient because someone told you so, or that's what you, know, you think the information says. And unfortunately, if you don't ask yourself the question, what can kill this person in the next six to eight hours, um, you don't look for it. Uh, and I'm, I'm guilty of this as much as, as anyone. And so essentially it came to a place where I would, as a young doctor, I would be afraid of losing patients. So the first thing I did was I had 25 patients on my list. I would look at that list and be like, who do I need to see first? And I would look at the data and be like, okay, what is the thing that's most likely to kill these 25 people? And then go see that sickest person first. Um, and while I started doing that, it coincidentally, I would walk into the room and it was obvious to me that a patient was developing sepsis because I decided this is the first person I'm going to see today. And there would be a very experienced nurse or a doctor standing next to this patient. And I would say, hey, how come nobody called me or said anything about this patient having sepsis? And then I would say, what are you talking about? And I said, well, look in the computer. They're going to develop sepsis in the next, you know, uh, next six to eight hours. And they would look at me like I was, you know, smoking crack. Uh, but it was mostly because I was just running every single patient I had through a nationally accepted set of rules on what sepsis looked like in patients. Um, that was going to be my next question is, does the sepsis have a real signature that can, that can be detected? Most people would say no to that uh, question. Uh, however, uh, there is an underlying pattern to people who are getting infections and getting sepsis. And not every patient has the same pattern. It depends upon the type of patient that you know, you're, you're looking at or the person, what else is going on with them. But I can tell you this, every subpopulation, like you know, whether if you look at liver disease or you look at heart disease or you look at lung disease, every subpopulation of uh, people have a common denominator on what sepsis looks like for them. And then there's a group of people that, you know, doctors will argue that, hey, you know, how about these people, you know, they developed sepsis and died. And, you know, my argument to, the, to them would be like, yeah, they are a subpopulation that is based on their genetics or based on other factors that you are not measuring that are behaving in a certain manner. But there's always a rule set it's biology, you know, it's, it's, it's not magic. So there's, right. there's a rule set that governs sepsis. So anyway, long story short, I ended up on the hospitals committee to figure out how we can solve sepsis or detect it faster. Um, this was at a large hospital chain that had 128 hospitals. And I was the hospitalist on the, on the committee and, uh, you know, kind of making the rules on what, what, what do we understand sepsis to be? Uh, ended up making a checklist on a piece of paper that we handed out to uh, our 450 nurses once a shift. <laughs> so twice a day, 900 pieces of paper. And then we had to hire a person to go around and collect all this paper back. And uh, that didn't work. So we ended up building on Epic, 
um, which is a great medical record system, but um, it's not built for for this for checking patients who you know do that sepsis or not. Um, while I'm making noises about software, you know, we need better software. Maybe have something web-based that we can just plug into the EMR medical electronic medical record system and just you know get going. My friend's daughter ends up in my ICU at 22. Um, she was being listed for a dual organ transplant um, for lung and liver. And hospital day three, you know, I, my son, you know, I woke up like 3.34 in the morning and, you know, something felt off to me and my friend was texting me. And so I ended up going in my car, getting my car, going up to the hospital just to pay a social visit. And I get off the elevator and they call code blue just as I step off, which means someone's heart stopped. And I see my friend is standing outside the ICU and he's crying. Um, I go into the room, the intern and resident who are on call are doing chest compressions on his daughter. Uh, they get tired. So, you know, I start doing chest compressions and resuscitation. Uh, then 45 minutes later, I had to go tell my friend that his da daughter died of septic shock. Um, and I wasn't her doctor, um, you know, looking at the medical record with all the other physicians involved, um, it looked like, you know, according to the standards of care that were available in those days, everybody said, you know, we did what we could, everything, you know, but I was looking at it going, well, we could have predicted that this was going to happen and we could have potentially used the information to do better. So I end up going home and in my naivety, it was the worst of my life. In my naivety, I decided I would um, try and fix it myself and I knew nothing about software. So I end up mortgaging my house, uh, starting the company in the garage to build better software. And I ran into Marcus in Sweden. Um, actually, he was getting married to one of my wife's closest friends. And I went there just to uh, vet him. You know, I was like, oh, you know, who is this guy she's getting married to, right? And since I'm such a good judge of character, you know. <laughs> so so I said, oh, you know, if this is the wrong guy, I'll just tell her, you know. Two, three days before the wedding, I'll just tell her and, you know, she can call the wedding off. And so I'm sitting in a small cafe in Uppsala. And I'm sharing about, you know, my ideas about software and he's talking about, it. and the guy goes, oh yeah, I, I could do this like version one, you do X. And I, you know, I was walking around with a check trying to hire uh, uh, software developers and everybody, you know, you know, they told me flash, they said, you know, build it in HTML5 and I, I know enough about software to be dangerous. So, <laughs> you know, uh, so anyway, so he, he says, hey, I can do this. He gets married the next day and I come back to Houston and uh, he's in Sweden. We talk like I think he gets married on Sunday. We talk on Monday. I'm back in Houston. He calls me and he says, hey, I've been thinking about your idea and I think we should do something about it. And I said, well, what, do you, what do you want to do? He's like, he said, I think we should start a company. I was like, oh, okay, uh, you're in Sweden. He's like, yeah. And so, you know, two and a half or three weeks later, he moved to my guest room with his uh, with his wife. Wow. And uh, we moved the cars out of the garage. We hired a guy to put up a wall. We punched a hole in the in the wall and, you know, <laughs> um, put in an AC and, you know, from Hope Depot. I bought some stuff from Ikea, tables. <laughs> wow. And, and yeah, we got cracking. Thankfully, it's uh, we're not in the garage anymore. It's been five years. Uh, so what we do is we help hospitals, number one, determine, agree upon what sepsis looks like, help their doctors agree on what sepsis looks like together, and then help them agree on what the treatment should be. 
and then we implement software which implement which enforces that agreement hmm. if if you agreed that you know this patient has sepsis because of these rules that we've already agreed upon these are the agreed sort of parameters that we'll use to treat the patient and we want you to treat patient within 60 minutes because every hour you wait uh, to treat a patient um, mortality goes up 7%. So sepsis mortality in the wow. United States today is at 50% approximately. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Sepsis that you miss will cost 50% of the people their lives. Um, and um, yeah, so we that's what we do. We use software to enforce that agreement and, and determine when uh, patients are not being treated and determine when patients are be treated. And it's a very effective way to do it, it seems. So you're, you're saying that there's a set of rules. Um, so there's not necessarily one signature for sepsis, but there's um, maybe N sig signatures for sepsis in different That's domains. Correct. That is exactly correct. And uh, anyone listening to this is, you know, who's a developer, you think you're going to build this yourself? knock yourself out. We just got a patent on it. So have fun. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. So the, that, that, what you just said, like, I'm, you know, I have a learning disability, um, which I don't think is a disability anymore. I think it's a superpower. So it's uh, because I had a learning disability, uh, I've been forced to adapt on how I think of information. So I bought it. The reason I ended up going to Russia for med school was I was at the bottom of my class in all through school. Like there was one standard de deviation between me and the guy who came second last in, in, in the class. So I was last and then, you know, you have one standard deviation, then it's the guy who's second last. And I ended up, you know, going to med school, just, you know, the Russian government had an exchange program and they, uh, they just wanted people to participate. And I was like, great, subsidized med school, let's do it. <laughs> and I, I learned how to, I learned how to learn essentially, which is why um, maybe I'm parsing information a little bit differently because I'm not the smart person in the room. I'm forced to boil information down to simple kind of understandable bits for my own sake. And sepsis is extremely complicated. Like, you know, anyone who says it's not, has not examined the issue uh, well enough. The word skeptic means someone who has examined from afar. And so, you know, people who are skeptics on sepsis, like they've usually not spent enough time and effort looking at enough people who died to understand why these people have died. Um, and so there is a, a common pathway underlying every person who's died with sepsis. And according to me, every single person who dies of sepsis, we can predict that they're going to die of sepsis. It might not be we can predict today, but uh, long-term, we can predict. We can predict genetically. We can predict based on the, the bug. We can predict based on, you know, 10 other things that I'm not going to tell you right now because that's our secret sauce, right? <laughs> no, I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. I just don't want to bore your audience. Uh, I, I'll nerd out on this. But yeah, this is this is not what I wanted to do with my life. Like I, I wanted to be a very successful doctor with lots of publications and had 10 other doctors working for me so that I can just be on a beach and just manage other people right but um yeah here i am like you know working one shift a quarter just to keep my license <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great well um how did you hear about uh cognitect uh we're all fanboys um and fangirls in the company uh, uh the the team was up in closure cons 
uh, last year and um, we have had these, I wasn't there, uh, but they had these big obnoxious shirts that said on the back, my code saves lives, ask me how. And um, so our CTO and uh, Marcus Reitberg and one of our developers, Chris Oakman, um, they're, they're big fans of ClojureScript. And um, uh, yeah, that's, that's how I heard of Cognitect. So, so what what's what's your experience been like um, working with? with us? Yeah, so interesting. So more recently, you know, I don't know if you know, we should get into how we started working with you guys. Um, uh, we, uh, I see you nodding your head, so I'm gonna I'm going to get into it. <laughs> so we were uh, we were partnering with the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, that these guys up in Atlanta on our sepsis work, um, and there's a national conference called HIMSS where the CDC was uh, invited us to be in their showcase to talk about how we can improve uh, patient outcomes working with Cerner and Philips and the hospitals, medical record systems and, you know, Washington Department of Public Health and, you know, our product and how we can help improve patient outcomes with sepsis. When COVID hit, someone on their team said, hey, you guys realize you can use your, your tool for COVID uh, population-based self-assessment. And I got to thinking and I said, yeah, you know what, you're right, we can. And so we sort of used the platform that we've spent five years building to churn out a prototype in like, you know, probably 24, 48 hours. We showed it to the Harris County Public Health City of Houston. They said, yeah, we want to do it. And so then it deployed in uh, uh, 1,800 square miles covering 5.5 million people. Twenty days after we got the idea, it's you know in production, working all of testing in uh, Harris County, Houston, for the public goes through this project, and we were uh, drowning because uh, we still have hospitals and customers and people to support, and we're very much a startup. And um, I think Chris uh, reached out to the community asking for help. Uh, Microsoft helped us. Microsoft for startups and. Uh, Frank Denbo there, uh, I think, put out a tweet uh, saying, hey, anyone who knows script, like, you know, like, reach out. And I think Justin reached out to Frank, who reached out to us, and uh, Frank was telling me that he said, uh, hey, how do you guys know script?" <laughs> and Ju- Justin was like, oh, we are script or something like that. We are. <laughs> <laughs> <That's great. laughs> and so, yeah, so you guys, you know, so it's been fun. Um, yeah. We've volunteered our platform to the city, given away for free, and you guys have volunteered helping us uh, support support these five six million people that that we're helping. So it's been great. It's uh, definitely been a level up for for our company to work with uh, Naoko and Jeb and Jared. And I don't know if they mind that I'm taking their names on a public forum, but. Here's to you guys. <laughs> oh, I will definitely relay that, and I'm sure they'll hear hear this. Well, thank you. Um, so, so what's it like getting um, a new software tool that's developed in a short amount of time, um, a deployed through to a to a large region, um, a large metropolitan region? And <laughs> what's what's the I, how is it working with local and uh, working with government essentially? I mean, it's been very interesting. Like um, the city and the Harris County Public Health folk have been very strong partners. They have um, 
you know, they, they have a lot of constraints, like, you know, they have a lot of people who are involved in, in the COVID response, like the software is a very small part of it. The software just helps funnel people towards testing based on zip code and so on. So I think, you know, with the constraints they've had and the numerous people have been involved in decision-making, uh, they got something up and running in under 10 days, right? Um, they made a decision, they, they moved on it and they deployed it and they went live and, you know, uh, so hats off to them. For my side, it's been very interesting um, to see how decisions are made in, uh, that affect the public. Um, there's, uh, you know, you all optimize for safety in healthcare, um, you know, do no harm first, right? Um, and it's interesting that the public uh, health department moves in the same manner, like they optimize uh, to prevent harm. So it's very interesting to, to see that, um, that thought process work out in government. So is there a tension between um, a, a global pandemic response, uh, the necessity to, to balance do no harm with um, a sense of urgency? Do you find that? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, sorry, I interrupted you, uh, in your question. What, what was your question? Well, I, I was wondering what the, what, what the tensions are and how does that, how does that interplay with, um, you know, trying to, trying to design software to help somebody achieve, um, lower, yeah. lower pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great question. So, you know, again, hats off to all the people working on this problem on the software side. Um, we deployed um the product like it's almost been a month now uh we built it i'm just looking at my calendar here um we we came up with the idea on the i think on the 12th of march um and we basically had a prototype built and ready for demo on the 14th of march wow the city made a decision to, and we put something in front of them on the 13th evening. They made a decision to move forward on the, on Monday. So Friday, we, Thursday evening, 4 PM, we came up with the idea. We churned, you know, through product design, the medical part of it, like the decision set, we deployed, had a prototype working on Friday, showed it to people on Friday. On Monday, the city decided to do it, like Harris County Public Health decided to do it. Uh, we had something, you know, production ready with load testing to take on like a hundred million people uh, by Sunday. <laughs> and, oh, we a, yeah, we had a, we had a lot of help. Like, you know, we had help from Microsoft CTOs and, you know, their <laughs> Azure cloud architects. Our, you know, our team has done a fantastic job and Cogitech showed up and helped us move a lot of the front end pieces very quickly. Um, so you know, hindsight always helps, but, you know, one thing is, so, you know, what I'm trying to say is a team of, you know, 14 to 17 people built and deployed something that is now in the third largest healthcare county in the United States with, with geo and zip code to help with epidemiology. And that's the part that we're working on right now is since we know all of these symptoms that have been reported, you can actually ahead of time predict what's going to happen. 
and we've seen at you know we were looking at the map the other day um, at just you know where have we seen activity from and we've seen people self assess on every continent like almost every country in the world except for the ones who's who are closed and I'm not going to take their names to the for but you know who you are <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so we've seen disease activity in every country like especially in the developing nations like you know to look at this and you know to be able to predict what's going to happen in two weeks three weeks from now um i would say just out of my own arrogance that yeah there's been some work done on the flu yeah there's been some work done on you know other epidemiological self reporting but nothing yet this scale nothing so quickly nothing built to address a need on the ground which is how do you get people through to testing when you have limited testing capabilities mm. um yeah but, but it also informs um the response beyond testing right how mm-hmm. to that's correct to, yeah. to schedule resources or to yeah to deploy. yeah exactly. exactly so what we're moving towards now is if you know how many people have symptoms in what part of town you know where you know let's take the homeless for example right so we have about 2000 people who are homeless in Houston and uh there's two doctors with healthcare for the homeless two two physicians wow. right and when they have to figure out what what to do to best serve the homeless population and our homeless residents um they have to you know somehow magnify their medical decision making across the city simultaneously so that's what they use our, our our web app for right now is they have their own instance for Houston healthcare for the homeless and they have their case workers out there with their cell phones with ipads with just you know computers that they have available at the homeless shelters assessing the homeless people to be able to best understand where to direct care uh you know does this person need to be in quarantine do they need to be tested do they need further healthcare and helps really really quickly get number one training done for all of the people who need to be uh the frontline workers and number two have a very repeatable quality controlled output and out- output is being defined as uh, as um uh, you know for example there's nothing wrong with you like mm. you know we're going to we're going to feed you and you know take care of your other needs but this is not covid related mm. or yeah you know you've had known exposure and you have a fever but you don't have any kind of concerning symptoms right now that would require you to be in a uh, in a hospital so how about we kind of protect you uh, in this other environment where we can quarantine you and provide for your needs and then a third output is like hey you know our uh, result is oh look you have a fever you don't have a known exposure but based on your symptoms and based on your risk factors based on what other medical conditions mm. you have you probably need closer attention and helping triage that uh just to those three outputs for example the three outcomes i see i see so so it's really the 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 data and the the ability to shed light on what's going on yeah exactly yeah so tying it back to why the company is called luminaire um the data exists we call it dark data when it sits there and i don't know if it's something we came up with i'm sure other smart people have come up with it but um it data that just sits there like and you don't know what to do with it is kind of useless right um so all we do really as a company is we sh- we say this all the time you know when we 
when we pitched to hospitals, we said, look, we don't actually do anything as a company. All we do is we shed light on your data and we shed light on the problem and it takes care of itself when you do that. Interesting. So, yeah. so there's there's actually an analogy in, in software. Um, there's, a, there's a whole movement now um, that is sort of the culmination of um, previous movements to increase the monitoring and the uh, the the visibility of software um, and how software performs and that the movement is now called observability. It's the ability to 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 see into what your systems are 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 doing and um, especially as as systems as the software systems are complex systems. They're not complex like the body, but they're sure. they're definitely complex. Sure. Um, and to be able to you know to to you know to use a flashlight, turn on the lights. And see what's going on, so you're, you're you at least are inform at least you have data to inform you. Whether you derive what conclusions from the data is yeah. separate, but you yeah. need to be able to see it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other things is, um, is software is a very effective way to implement fractal design in behavior. So a fractal is just a repeating pattern, right? So if you look at nature and, you know, if you want to start a software company like Jurassic Park, by the way, uh, so not the movie, the book, right? Like what, re read the book. So what, what, one of the things we realized was um, the hospital is like Jurassic Park. It's like life always finds a way, right? So death always finds a way to get in there and wreak havoc. And we have created an artificial environment where we think we can, you know, sort of keep it at bay, but we fail to acknowledge the math in the process. And so if you look at what a nurse does every day, he shows up at work, he gets checkout from another nurse, and then the call light goes off all the time. People want their meds, you know, someone, you know, had an accident, they need to get cleaned. There's other complaining family members, there's complaining doctors, doctors being jerks, all sorts of things hitting them as soon as they come on their shift. And, but their work is essentially a fractal. Like a nurse should be able to show up and he should be able to do the same thing in a repeatable manner every single day. So what we've done is we've used our software to implement a behavioral fractal in the nurse's workflow, where in the first 45 seconds of their day, what they do is they use our system and preempt the patient decompensating or predict which patient is going to get sick. And because you do that, you have now created a repeatable process for your nurse and you are able to predict and create stability in the organization. So we, we talk about how we implement fractal design for nursing behaviors using software. And a large part of this is also observation. It's like you need to observe to make sure that um, that fractal is being grown properly, so to speak, um, in real time every day for every nurse. So so the when you say grown, um do you mean that the processes um the the checklists evolve over time or? yes so the checklist evolves over time uh when i say grown i meant more of um think about it as a as a nursing behavior or as a physician's behavior as a crystal that's growing right you want to be able to influence that growth in the early stages because then you can predict what the outcome is going to be like so the problem in healthcare is everybody tries to sort of take a mature system and disrupt it and change it when the, when the process is already matured. What you really want to do is just influence the process in the early days, like get, get everybody to agree upon what, you know, a behavior is going to be and that kind of stuff, right? Oh, that's quite profound. It is profound. It's from Jurassic Park. 
<laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, so you know that that that's what I mean by 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 growth is the behavior. You can grow the behaviors. You can grow the good behavior, so to speak. That makes total total sense. I'm gonna write a book. I'm gonna call it Jurassic Park in Healthcare. And you can find... <laughs> I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not smart enough to write a book just yet. I'll inflict a book on people in maybe 10, 15 years from now. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I, that that makes that really does tie in a lot, and it it, it seems more transcendent than medicine. About um, <laughs> and I mean, really, a, a lot of this stuff is when it's when it's grown to a full structure it's too late yeah you know yeah and i mean again you know i told you i like nerd out on this like um this is this is what i've been you know me and the gang like marcus and chris and, and cora and audi and you know katie and all, all of us are this is what we think about is like what what, what do we how do we actually sort of implement change in six and a half thousand hospitals in the united states stopping a quarter million people from dying you know that's 800 people a day who die and these are moms and dads and sisters and brothers and i i came to a place where i just got sick of having these conversations with people and their loved ones on how you know someone died because they had sepsis and you know if only we knew beforehand what was going to happen and it's like yeah you can know beforehand like back then like today i don't blame hospitals because they they don't have the tools they need like it's just you know, we're we're basically accusing hospitals of not taking care of people, but they just don't have the tools. These are all good people who yeah. are highly skilled, highly trained. Yeah, I, I say this to hospitals all the time. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, oh, I'm going to go to work today and then miss this key piece of information so that someone dies, right? <laughs> That's that's not that's not why you go into healthcare as a nurse or as a doctor or as a pharmacist or as, a, as, a, or as an IT person, right? And... So it's really equipping all the good people with the stuff they need to, to to make sure that we can prevent death. Wow. I mean, it, the, there is totally a, a software analogy here, even though. Please, a, please, d- I'm learning d- about software, uh, so you know, well, have, um, have at it. <laughs> so w- one of the uh, the early closure con- conferences, there was a keynote speaker uh, named Bradford Cross, um, who had, who had been around the the startup community um, had had several successful startups um, but he was he, at the time he gave a keynote about um, a news aggregation system and crawling system that was sort of personalization based and it, anyway they they ended up having to crawl a, a, a ton of uh, articles and social networks that people um, people visited and um, he he relayed this anecdote in the in the in the um, in the keynote, that was great. Where he he said that they started instrumenting their web crawling uh, system, and the minute they turned on instrumentation um, and they looked at the data, they realized that they were dropping like ninety one percent of all the data was being dropped on the floor because of a like a parse error. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're like, we didn't know. I mean, we had no. They, there was no malice. They didn't yeah. mean yeah. to miss. To, to, yeah. to parse the data incorrectly but uh, um, you can't you you don't know until you put a light on right that's exactly right and you know to, to give me goosebumps is like that's what Marcus used to do for you know in the past like the in 
you know, they, they built one of the earliest like web crawlers, like looking at news and things like that. And I'm not going to steal his thunder, but you know, um, uh, they, they, they big brother did. They were able to help like, you know, understand where crime was going to happen and, you know, why it was going to happen and things like that. And, uh, oh my God. But, but, you know, but this was years and years and years ago, right? And, um, but uh, I think they basically like pulled the plug on the project because of that. It's like, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I, I, you know, there's a guy called Edward Deming um, mm. and, you know, um, he's not very popular nowadays i think except for among the nerds and um it, it's incredible the reason the toyota efficiency model exists right is because of measurement it's right if you do, if you can't measure if you can't look into your process or your you can't shed light on 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 the granular data like you're you're not going to get better you're just you know you, you don't even know how bad you are right you're just guessing you're just right? guessing. Exactly. Like, yeah. Why guess when you can measure? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, it it has been um, super interesting talking to you. Uh, this, you. This is a fascinating conversation. Um, I have, thank you. Well, I, I have a couple questions. Um, sure. Um, before before we uh, before we drop off, um, one is when do you think you're going to get the Nobel Prize? <laughs> oh, this is probably from Naoko and Jeb telling you that I had a conversation with them where, uh, and I think uh, Chris, uh, Chris, Christopher Small was on that call too. And I basically told them that I have my tuxedo picked out and my speech written out for the Nobel Prize. And I met the guy who's going to announce me on stage. Um, <laughs> uh, because my, you know, my Marcus was Sweden. My wife is from Sweden. His wife is from Sweden. Like you go to Sweden, like, you know, once a year and hang out there. But uh, I, I don't know. I don't care. That's not why I'm doing That's this. That's not why you're doing this. I crave anonymity. I want to just be able to go to Target and shop and have no recognized who I am. That's at the end of the day. And, and you know, I want to be able to um, achieve our mission of stopping a quarter million people of dying in our hospitals of sepsis. That's step one for me. And I honestly, you know, if you asked me this like six years ago, I would love to have the Nobel Prize. I'd love to be on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, but today, if you ask me, that's the opposite of, of what I want. I just don't want to be on TV. I don't want to be on a podcast. I don't want to be on anything. But it, I think it helps achieve the mission, right? getting the word out and getting people on board and thinking about it. it, it yeah. I mean, celebrity is a, is a curse almost. And you just, you want to do as much good as possible. Um, yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, that question was absolutely planted. Uh, yeah. But, but, but I know those guys, I'm going to give them a hard time when I see them. I, well, I, I was, I, you know, whenever I have these conversations with, at the end of it, I say, don't worry, I'm probably the most humble person you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right. I have one final question for you. And if that, sure. um, if you could impart uh, a little bit of advice upon our listeners. Sure. Sure. I love giving advice. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's like good advice or bad advice, but advice I can give, right? <laughs> uh, does, it, you, does it have to be one one part? Because, you know. No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna uh, harsh you mellow. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I don't know. Don't go to medical school. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. It's contextual, right? It depends upon uh, who it is that that wants advice. But 
um, if you're going to start a company, my recommendation would be before you start a company, go become a subject matter expert and kind of feel the pain first mm. uh, before you decide to do something like that. Uh, because days get hard and long. And if you don't know the why, then you're going to just stop. And, you know, nobody ever fails. They just stop prematurely, right? Mm. Is, <laughs> is one way to look at it. Uh, I don't know. I that's already two pieces of good good advice. Is <laughs> I, I, know I, the I problem. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I'm like wise enough to handle advice, but I would say art. I would say like go learn how to play the piano, right, or something like that, right? It's it's like just invest in something that is not got to do with anything that will give you a return except to you, and it might be your family, it might be art, it might be I don't know, like working out, but my advice right now in the pandemic would be invest in something which you don't think will give you sort of return that you necessarily want and to me like you know playing the piano or the guitar or whatever like um, it's just an investment and i'm not sure what return it gives me but it's just it's great i love it when i retire i'm gonna play like eight hours a day that's all i'm gonna do That's great. I I fully support support that. (laughs) Uh, I also am very ambitious. So my plan is to pick up a new instrument every year, but not, not to become perfect at it, but just enough to be able to like play in, in, in a, in a ensemble, like, you know, you know, play enough cello that if there was like five other people in the band, you could like carry it off without people knowing you're not really good at it, you know? (laughs) You just blend in. (laughs) Yeah, just blend in, you know, play the right keys at the right time, that's it. You know, the simple stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Just the simple stuff, right? Not not the solo musician kind. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of things figured out. I really appreciate your time, Sarma. Please keep doing what you're doing, stopping sepsis, helping the COVID efforts that uh, are being felt planet-wide, and you might have, our listeners might have even interacted with uh, this COVID tracking system. Um, well, uh, anybody you want to shout out? Yeah, I uh, want to shout out to the Luminaire team um, for you know everyone, the developers, the sales team, support. Uh, Cognitech, uh, you guys have been great. Like, I just you know, hope that I can continue to work with you guys and learn a lot. Um, uh, to Microsoft, uh, obviously, you know, could not get there without uh, Frank Denbo and like the COVID 19 response unit. Um, yeah, and you know, just you know, all the people who are actually in hospitals taking care of patients. Um, I just want to stop and recognize them i mean it's just it's uh, incredible work well thank you again this has been the cognicast you have been listening to the cognicast the Cognicast is brought to you by Cognitech. We're a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We are here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognitech. 
You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Sarma Velamori, who is at Sarma Velamori on Twitter. That's at S-A-R-M-A underscore V-E-L-A-M-U-R-I on Twitter. Our host this week was Gotti Shaban, who is at Smash the Past on Twitter. Episode cover art is by me, Russ Olson. Audio production is by Joe Smith and Jared Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is by Ben Camphouse, who produces music as Pattern Shift. Look for it on any of the major streaming services. I'm Russ Olson. Please stay safe and healthy out there. And thanks so much for listening. No, no, great question. <laughs> I have to try it again. No. You're like, yeah, great question. Where'd you come Sorry. up with that one? <laughs> uh.